Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real follows the oldest form of learning, that of listening to the stories and experience of those around us, those closest to us, those here in Western Australia. Today we're going to get into emotional intelligence and human behaviour with acclaimed coach and keynote speaker, Amy Jacobson. Amy, Amy welcome to the show. Thanks, Brina. I'm so happy to be here. So first question, and I got it nice and topical, is how are you finding isolating here in Western Australia, one of the prettiest parts of the world? Oh, I think we're pretty lucky, aren't we? I think we're lucky that we've got such gorgeous weather so far. So we're not, you know, huddled up at the moment with cold, rainy weather. So there's still that opportunity to go outside and enjoy and, and really make the most of it. And I think, you know, there's not many other places in the world that I'd like to be holed up in. Perth's a beautiful place for it. So it's all good on my front so far. Superb, superb. And you came to Perth from New South Wales, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I'm originally born in New South Wales um, on the central coast, just north of Sydney. And um, my husband is from Coffs Harbour mostly, but he was born in Outback New South Wales as well. So Perth is, um, it, Perth's home now, definitely home now, um, but I think we'll always be East Coasters in there as well. Right. Why is it home now? Uh, I think, look, it took a long time. It took a long time to become home. We've been here since 2004 we arrived. And um, I think for those first, I'd say first good five years, maybe even a little bit longer, there was a lot of consideration in moving back to the East Coast. Uh, there's a lot of things about the East Coast that we still do miss. Um, but I think we got to a point where we thought we just, you cannot replicate the life that you have, the lifestyle that you have in WA, in Perth, anywhere else in Australia. It's just, you've got the best of everything. And um, I think it was at that stage, it wasn't until the point where we accepted that and realized that and turned down some really good opportunities to go back east that we went you know what it's because this is home like this is 100 percent home now yeah, it sort of crept up on you yeah it did it did and i think you know this is always that always that bit of rivalry from the east coast to the west coast uh so we i mean we'll still always have that bloodiness we're big nrl fans so uh we still follow a lot of the east coast stuff um, but yeah, Perth's just, there's just too many amazing things about Perth to, um, to not want to stay here and, and call it home. Superb. So you're a coach and keynote speaker, um, with a real sort of focus on human behavior and emotional intelligence, mindset, disrupting mindset. Why is this important to you? What's the story behind that? Well, I've always had a fascination with the mind and I think uh, it's probably, it's not leveraged enough. I, th I think we put such mm -hmm. an emphasis on technical skills and, um, you know, learning different trades and skill sets and stuff where I, I actually think that what makes brilliant people, what makes inspirational people, what makes highly successful and those people that you recall throughout your life that have made the biggest impact, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I actually think it has everything to do with their emotional intelligence. It's, it's the way that other people make you feel. It's, uh, it's being able to change who you are and what you're capable of purely from changing your mindset and the way that you approach things. 
I just think there's so much power in there and we, we chase we chase the wrong things in life. You know, we, we think that success is hung up around job titles and pay packets and the size of the house that we live in and the type of car that we drive. Um, but I think the, the ultimate power is in your mind. It's, you know, you can, you can chase as many things as you want, but if you, if you can actually leverage the full ability of your mind, your emotional intelligence, then that's going to be more successful than any car, any house, any job, any pay packet. That sounds almost like a, a personal epiphany. When did that drop? <laughs> look, it took me a long time. Um, look, if I if I was to go back to my story, and it's a story that I do visit quite often now because I, I get a lot of questions around how, like, how did you end up in this space, Amy? Because uh, I, I spent 19 years in corporate world and um and, you know, you speak to a lot of people that come out of the corporate world and into either mind business or coaching businesses or their own business. And, and they say, yeah. you know, I'd never go back to corporate world. I, you know, I'm so glad I'm out of there. But I love corporate world. And, and I love that. I love it. Why? Yeah. I, I just, I love the excitement of it. I love how much is always happening there. I love the the bringing of people together, the constant challenge that every day kind of throws something different in there that you're constantly learning and every, you know, and the bigger the company, the better for me, right? Like if, if you're working in a big corporate company, every single person has a slightly different personality. They have a slightly different skill set. They have a different way of approaching things. They have different emotional reactions. And I think you can learn so much by being around people like that. The same as every customer you come across is going to be different. And, um, and I think the real opportunity there is too often we pick up a cookie cutter approach where, where if you throw me into even just spending a day in a corporate company, I mean, I can still learn so much from my clients just hearing what they do and how they do it and why they do it. So, um, yeah, I think, I think I'll always love corporate world. I love, I love the rush of it. I love the rush. I love the, the busyness, the panic, the, the ability to, to have an impact on so many people if you choose to mm -hmm. in the right way. So I do love so, that. So how did you choose to leave? Or what was it around that? Yeah, so... You do what you do now. Yeah, so a bit of a, a, bit of a background story to it. Um, as I said, I was in corporate world for 19 years and those 19 years were all spent in insurance. Yeah. Um, insurance, I was pretty much in life insurance, general insurance, commercial insurance, so all parts of insurance. And look, I never, ever had any inclination to end up in insurance. I don't, I don't think anybody does, right? It's, you know, kind of leave school saying, I want to be in insurance. No, no, I haven't had any kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So I fell into it. And, and the reason why I fell into it, and I probably need to start my story here, is that um, I... I came from a family where nobody had gone to university yet. So I always had that dream of going to university and being the first one in our family to go to university. And I was, yeah. I was really hung up on it. You know, I was going to succeed. And, and um, I got to the end of year 12. And I think this is where this mind challenge really started hitting into me. And I looked and I thought, well, what do I want to do? And I just didn't have the answer to that. I thought, uh, you know, I read all these job titles and I thought, well, I don't really know what that job actually does day to day. Sure, I know what it's about, but I don't know what it does and I don't know whether I'm going to like that. So why would I commit, you know, a minimum of four to five years studying for something that 
I don't know if I'm going to like and committing all this money without getting out there and testing it out first, right? And that's that real kinesthetic side in me that says, you know, I'm not about just sitting down and studying and researching and stuff until I can get my hands into it and see whether that's what I want to do. Yeah, um, yeah. So I made a big call at that point in my life that said, I'm not going to go to university straight away. I'm going to go out into the workforce. And um, at that point, I absolutely shattered my parents. Um, they were so disappointed in me. And I can still remember the moment. Um, and, you know, my dad looked at me and said, you are throwing your life away. Like, you are capable of so much more. I cannot believe you're going to make this decision. And, um, and I think at that point... I made it. That's a heavy weight of expectation, isn't it? It's huge, right? And, and I was always that kid that, um, you know, that liked to make my parents proud. And, and um, it, it was a big call and it, it made me doubt myself. Uh, but I'm very decisive as well. And once I'd made that decision, I knew it was the right one. But at that point in time, I said to myself, uh, I will prove them wrong. I will prove them wrong that I can be as successful as I would be if I went to university by going into the workforce first. Um, so at that point in time, I created a very, uh, a very wrong image of success in my mind. It, I created this image of success saying that I will succeed if I can get a high stature job title and a pay packet based on what I think a university qualified successful person earns without going to university first. Now that's really interesting because you've, I've had a lot of people on the podcast who have recognized the story that's driven them and it's taken them so far and then been their nemesis after a period of time. So it's fascinating to hear the point at which it, the, the, the identity, the story facet drops and you go, that is what it should look like. That is where I'm going. Yeah, it was that defining moment. Yeah, that said, I kind of in my head went, okay, if I was to have gone to university and come out with one of these high profile jobs, I probably would have been earning around, you know, 250, 300, that like defining that money set in my head, defining that senior title level in my head and then thought, okay, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there, but I'm going to get there my way, not your way. And I'm going to prove you wrong. So off I went 19 years of climbing that corporate ladder. Right. And, um, and look, I, I had an amazing career. I had the most amazing leadership people around me. I had fantastic opportunities uh, that I'm so, so thankful for. And, and I didn't really have any direction other than that job title and that pay packet that I was... Here's a question for, for you. Success. Did your mum and dad ever say they were proud of you for what they did? You yes. Don't. Yeah, they did. They, it took a little while, but I think they accepted... Um, they accepted that I'd say probably about probably about within six or seven years of me going out into the workforce and they could see <laughs> that I was moving up that corporate ladder, that I was that ladder, that I was changing, that I was getting opportunity. And they thought, okay, maybe, you know, maybe she will be all right here. Um, and it's funny because I've got a sister who is 11 years younger than me. And um, by the time she got to the stage where she was choosing what to do out of school, their approach to her was very different. Mm. They'd watched me those 11 years in advance um, kind of take a very different <coughs> what they had kind of 
um, envisage success look like. So, yeah, it was interesting. But um, when did it all change? I, as I said, 19 years, I chased that and I hit my, I hit my definition of success. Um, yeah. And I can still remember. How did that feel? It felt like a fizzer, actually. It was, <laughs> it was a real fizzer. Is uh, I think. Well, the, yeah, yeah, that, that was exactly it, right? Like it was, it was set this dream and this this definition of success was in my head for so many years that I was trying to achieve and trying to achieve and trying to achieve, and when I hit it, I went, "Oh, is this it? Like, what do I do now?" Like, what's my driver now? Mm. And, um, and I actually, when, when I hit that, I'd already started getting um, my business in place and, and my ideas around that. And we can talk about that, that kind of path later. But I think when I hit that, I actually resigned from the job that I was in three weeks later because I thought, okay, I've lived my whole life for this moment and I'm still not happy. Like, I still don't feel like I've reached that success, that happiness mode. And I think that was the biggest wake-up call to me to say, happiness is not about that job title or pay packet. Happiness is all about doing what you love and enjoying it and feeling fulfilled. And, um, and I didn't have that. So I thought, it's time. It's and that, time. Can, that can cause almost... Um quite a little challenge, quite a little assault at the identity level, which can bring about, you know, almost like a mini existential crisis because you define yourself by this thing that you're doing and you're chasing. And then you get there or you take it away and it's like, who, who, what am I actually, if I'm not this? And it's kind of poignant, isn't it? When you think about, you know, so many people right now in the coronavirus environment will have had so many things taken away and I I spoke about this a little while ago on my Facebook page about how there's going to be a real assault of people at the identity level because all these things that we anchor into to create our sense of identity from an external perspective are being taken away one by one by one right down to little things like you can't stand in the coffee shop and you might be the person who likes to stand in the coffee shop, you know, or I am the person that goes to the gym. Well, guess what, buddy? You're not going to the gym. Yeah. And then all the way up to job level, I'm the guy that gets commutes and goes to the office and does the thing. And no, and you know, so all these things that we hold dear at an identity level. Yeah. I was actually speaking to someone the other day and they said something that hit home to me too. And they said, at this point in time with everything that's happening, your skill level, your, your technical skill or exactly your identity doesn't really mean anything because everyone's on even par. Everyone is equal in this situation. None of us have been through it before. It's not like, you know, sometimes at work where people can say, or even in life when people can say, oh, you know, I was around for the GFC and, you know, and I know how to approach this situation or I've been here for 15 years and last time we yeah, had yeah. more drop in the market. Nobody can actually say they've been through a pandemic before. So um, we're all very equal at this point in time. And you're right, it's, it's, it is a bit of an identity shake for us. Mm-hmm. So with your work, what, what is the impact that you want to have with it? What's the drive? What's the outcome? I like to, 
I would say I'd like to make people feel uncomfortable. And I know that sounds quite strange. Um, but I In think a beneficial way. Yes, yes. In, in a benevolent, a, beneficial way. In, in a challenging, good way. And, mm. um, and I get that feedback a bit in that people will say to me, Amy, you know, you're very thought-provoking, but you made me feel uncomfortable, but in a good way. And I think it's being able to really challenge the way that people think and not to give them answers because, you know, emotional intelligence and coaching is not about that, right? It's not about giving anyone answers. It's about really asking those challenging questions and those mindsets that they already have predetermined that have probably been predetermined since they were children. Mm. Really taking Like your version of success. Yeah, yeah. And kind of just shaking it a bit and saying, well, really? Like, really? Is, is that how it works? Are you sure about that? And really diving a little bit deeper into it. And I think um, for me, probably the area I focus the most on is ownership. And I, th I think we're so quick in our mind and especially, you know, have a look at what's happening at the moment. So many of us need someone to blame when situations go wrong or we don't end up in the house that we dreamt of or in the car that we dreamt of or, or earning the pay packet that we dreamt of or, um, or getting sick in a pandemic like this, it's gotta be somebody else's fault. Uh, so I work a lot and I think probably the biggest thing I get out of it is when I see people realize that actually it all does come down to them. Like every single thing we do in life, every, every position that we're in has come from a choice that we have made through a priority. We don't like, we don't make sacrifices. Nobody forces us to do anything. We make a choice and we own that choice based on the priority or the consequences out the other end. And um, I, I love that point when I'm working with people and I can finally see us get through that, either that victim mentality or that finger pointing or the woe is me or, you know, yeah. I've, had no, I've had no decision in this. And they realise, actually, I have. I, I chose this and I can choose All to choose. All along the way, yes. Yes, yes. And that, that's why I love doing what I do. I, I just love people... I love it when you see their mind click over and they just change their, they change their thought patterns and their mindset and they really realize what they're truly capable of. I love mm. it. And it, it's, it's confronting that, isn't it? Cause you've got to go through this gateway of, Oh shit. I have been yeah. an active participant in all of it. I have been making decisions. I have been responsible. I have been, you know, the owner, the architect, the master of the ship throughout all of this. Yeah, it's it, like you say. It's so easy to blame, and yes. you know it's it's institutionally sort of encouraged. Mm -hmm. You know whether it's whether it's the media. You know, or who's to blame for this? Who yes. finger pointing? And and li the litigious legal system of well, I will just you know sue you because you're to oh. blame because you're very yes. wrong. But um, you know, I was speaking to a friend yesterday. We came to the conclusion like. Nobody really knows what to do in the current coronavirus environment. You know, the, even the politicians and the medical staff, they're doing the best they can. But they don't know what to do. No. At that's, all. That's right. And I think, uh, you know, I even found myself during this pandemic, um, you know, I guess questioning some people earlier on and really getting my mind too heavily into it too, thinking, you know, what can I do? And that's a, again, that's a real, that real kinesthetic side of me where it wants to get involved and wants to be able to help. 
But I think in situations like this, there's a whole level of trust, right, that, that we just need to trust that we've got the right people in the jobs. And even if we don't feel like we've got the right people in the jobs, they've got access to the right information. They've got access to information that we don't have access to. They've got access to people that we don't have access to. And I think that, you know, we have to trust that they're doing the right thing. And it makes it easier on our mindset too, if we do just switch off and say, okay, let's not try and solve the world ourselves. We don't need the whole world trying to, to solve it. We just need a couple of key people trying to solve it and everybody else just needs to do what they're told. That, that's how I kind of look at it. I think if, you know, if we all just do what we're supposed to do, um, then things will be a lot easier rather than this whole um, defensive mechanism that we kick into where we start to question and go, well, why should I do that? Or what makes you think you're all right? I think it's this way or I think it's this way. And um, that's where we end up in even more of a mess, I think. And it's a challenge because, you know, from kids and we even see it as parents and as adults, we're not very good at doing what we're told. It's only... <laughs> it's only in those super, super critical moments where we actually just go, oh, all right, I'll do, I'll do what I'm told. And, you know, there'll be that lag period with this where, you know, it came on and it was all new and like, okay, we'll do what we're told, we'll do the social distancing and this, that, and the other. Yeah. But then that intensity level will drop and then people will start to, oh, yeah, I'm getting a bit bored of this now. Yeah. And <laughs> sustaining it, isn't it? Well, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I joke around all the time with um, people and say, like, n nobody likes being told what to do. It, it is an absolute true fact. We do not like being told what to do. Uh, however, the only time we like being told what to do is in an emergency. So mm. when we're in a, when our health or our life is at risk, uh, and that's when we want to be told what to do, and that's that, that, that pure panic mode, right, that we go into. Yeah, and yeah. you're right in that. Save uh, me, save me. Yeah, that's right. That It's that fight for survival kind of mode that we go into. And I think a lot of people have gone through that and um, and they turn to toilet paper clearly as their saviour, which I'm, I'm not sure how that's going now. But I think too, you're right in that in the coming weeks, isolation, everyone, you know, is doing what they're supposed to be doing now. But if that sense of urgency and that sense of fear and that sense of my life is at risk kind of dwindles, because they look and they think, well, I can't, you know, I look out the window and nothing looks different and, um, and I'm still here and I'm still fine and I haven't got sick after being three weeks at home. Maybe they're overreacting. Maybe I'll just do my own thing. I think yeah. that and when your mindset says I'm no longer in a fight for survival mode, then um, do I really want to do what I'm told to do? And that's when I think we'll get people challenging it. Mm. Tell me about... Um emotional intelligence because that, that's a key thing and you know everybody knows iq um yeah. but not so many people understand eq yeah so eq uh first off i'd i'd say that eq has become a bit of a buzzword um, which probably doesn't work in its favour. Uh, people either love it and they think it's, you know, and some people see it as this real spiritual, you know, rainbows and lollipop type thing, positive affirmations, uh, where other people are dead against it and say, no, it's too soft, it's too much of a buzzword, where I actually think emotional intelligence sits right in the middle. 
and emotional intelligence, because what emotional intelligence is, is it, it kind of covers five key factors. And, and when you read about people that specialize in emotional intelligence, sometimes those five key factors can vary slightly, but they all kind of cover that same area. And, and those areas are your self-awareness, uh, which is really understanding who you are and what makes you tick. Um, your self-regulation, which is all about regulating and controlling your emotions. So that's when we say, you know, I know who I am, but I just can't control it. I cannot control the way I react. Um, then we have our communication. And communication is sometimes referred to as social skills uh, in different models. So that's really being able to influence and communicate people and have impact on what we do and say. Uh, the other one is people skills, uh, which also can be referred to as empathy. I like to call it people skills because I think there is well, empathy is one of the number one key parts of people's skills. It certainly doesn't cover everything. And especially in the corporate world where I work, there's a whole greater piece around people's skills. And the fifth one is motivation. That's all about getting stuff done. Uh, and is that it, your own or other people or being aware of both? It's both. It's both. Motivation, when we come from an emotional intelligence point of view, it's generally about getting yourself motivated. But then once you understand how to motivate yourself, you also understand how to motivate other people. And when you're motivating other people, you're bringing in that communication aspect or those social skills and you're bringing in the people, the empathy side. So they do all sort of play together. They absolutely do. All five areas overlap. Uh, but I think the absolute key to it is that before you can help anyone else in emotional intelligence, you must understand yourself. You cannot even begin to understand what makes other people tick until you understand what makes you yeah. tick. So it is about starting with that. I always say to people, really, you should be starting with self-awareness and self-regulation first. Um, however, self-awareness and self-regulation are probably two of the hardest areas and most challenging to, um, to master, where communication is probably, I'd say, one of the easiest. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting you use the word master because, I don't know, <laughs> do you ever truly master self-awareness and self-regulation? I don't think so. Look, I, I, I specialise in this area and I have moments at home where I lose it and I walk away and I think, wow, I didn't self-regulate that too well. Do you? Actually, that's really interesting. Do you find at times that because you're so deep dived into the world of EQ and self-awareness, self-regulation and the other things that you you know, at the end of the day, we are all human and we do fall prey to our own, you know, stories, anxieties and things like that. But then do you find you, you have this extra layer of beating yourself up because you're like, God damn it, I'm an EQ coach. I should know bloody better. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. I think it's the, it's the old story, isn't it? You know, that mechanics usually drive the worst cars and, mm. <laughs> you know, people that cook for a living don't want to come home and cook at home. Uh, but I, I think my expectations probably are a little bit higher. There are times when I certainly have to call myself out and say, how about we practice what we preach? Mm. Uh, bring a little bit of that emotional intelligence into what we do. And then I think I've also got to be quite careful in that, um, you know, I, I can remember a couple of years ago, I went into a meeting that was quite I found quite frustrating and um, trying to get through to the people there and I walked out of that meeting and I thought wow Amy that was probably the worst advertisement for emotional intelligence that you've ever done because you you did not regulate you, you lost your cool and you spoke over somebody because you were frustrated 
Um, but I think it's at times like that I need to sit back and say, okay, emotional intelligence is something you have to work at every day and you can't just go to an EQ course or, or listen to a podcast or do a program and be emotionally intelligent. It just doesn't work that way. It's, it's skill sets that you're learning, that you're practicing and you're putting it in play every single day because every situation is different. Every person is different and, um, and you need to be bringing those skill sets out each day. So, but IQ tends to have the reputation of being quite fixed in terms of this is my IQ level and it sort of stays there. Is, is EQ fixed or is it saying we can work, develop and, and, and things like that? I don't think it's fixed at all. Uh, I think it's something, I, I truly do believe that some people are born with higher tendencies in EQ. I really do. I think um, there are people that I meet and I think just speaking to them, I can see that EQ comes naturally to them. They don't even realise they're doing it. It's just, it's been embedded in them since a very early age and they can do, they just get it. Uh, but I've also come across people who EQ is not very high and they've been able to change it and they've been able to learn it and they've been able to build on it. So I think um, I, I look at it and think the main difference that I would see between uh, why you can embed that IQ versus that EQ a little bit different is it all comes down to that amygdala in your mind in that we're dealing with, with EQ, we are dealing with emotions and that is a constant chemical reaction in your mind. IQ is information that you're learning, you're studying and, and you're embedding that into your brain, right? Where it becomes a memory that you're recalling. Where EQ, yes, you can embed the skills, but you need to apply those skills every single time your amygdala triggers an emotional response. So you're always going to have, EQ is not about shutting down any emotion. It's you know, there's no such thing as a bad emotion. So it's not like saying once you are emotionally intelligent, you'll never be angry or frustrated again <clears throat> because there is always a place for anger and frustration. It just comes down to the appropriateness of it and the severity of it. So you are constantly applying that skill set and the ability to understand, okay, what is the appropriate emotional response in this situation? What is the appropriate severity of that emotion? in this situation. It's constant. It's interesting to use the word um, appropriate because often feelings and emotions, they just come up. So, you know, by putting the word appropriate over it, it could, I, in my own time, have found that, you know, sometimes I felt really angry and I'm like, I shouldn't really be feeling angry, but it's like, but I am feeling angry. <laughs> And, and it's like, and I'm feeling pissed off. What, what, and, and, you know, being, being the archetypal male for many years that came out of an English boys boarding school, I was fantastic at compartmentalizing things. Yeah. So <laughs> off you go. And, um, yeah, so you're like, oh, this, this doesn't feel, I think I used to look at things in terms of, is this productive right now or stuff like that? Or like, oh, this is a bit messy. I'll put it over there for a while. But to, and, and that's that's probably what triggered me when you said the word appropriate because it's like oh is this appropriate or is it not um it, 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 is that the case because you know what you feel is what you feel 
and and it is very much a subjective reality um mm -hmm. is it is part of eq just allowing yourself to feel what you feel during that period of time and going into it and 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 almost surrendering to it because the the the, the quicker you surrender to it the quicker it actually passes and, and and the truth behind why you feel like that actually comes up i would say it's more understanding why you feel the way that you feel so mm. it's understanding what has triggered me in this situation for me to feel like that and yes the most important question you can ask yourself in emotional intelligence is, do I want to feel like that? Because yeah. if you're happy to feel like that, if you're happy to feel the emotion that you're feeling, then by all means, write it out because you've got to, the only way you're going to change or become more emotionally intelligent is to want to change it. You've got to be able to look and say, okay, uh, you know, every time I'm in the car and I'm driving and the traffic is insane and somebody cuts in front of me, I know that's going to trigger me to get really, really angry. And therefore, it's going to change the whole tune on my day based on that frustration. Now, for example, at that point, you'd want to go, okay, am I happy to be angry when that happens? Am, am I happy with my emotional response? And if the answer is yes, then leave it. Like, don't, don't change it because if you're happy with that and that's who you are, then fine. You enjoy the frustration. <laughs> that's exactly right. You know, I've had people say to me, you know, what really infuriates me, it's when people lie to me or when, you know, I read stories about pedophiles or something bad like that. And I say, well, do you want to change the way you feel when that happens? And they said, no. And I said, well, that's okay. If, if you are happy with who you are, then leave it. But then if we were to have a look at that example of, of being on the freeway in really bad traffic, uh, when I say the appropriateness and the severity levels of it, now appropriate might be sitting in your car and going, oh, like this person's just cut in front of me. How annoying, right? That's, that's triggering an annoyance in me. <clears throat> Where an inappropriate response to that would be to pull over on the side of the road, get your baseball bat out of the back of the car and go over and start smashing their window. So you can see when I say the appropriateness and the severity of it, an emotion of a frustration or anger can, is on a, it's on a sliding scale, right? And I think that's where we see emotional intelligence is that it's okay to be frustrated and angry at a situation, but is your frustration appropriate? Is it appropriate based on the severity, but also the situation, you know, like if you were to walk into a funeral, like, yahooing and partying and jumping up and down and clapping the same as you would walk into a birthday party is it appropriate probably not so i think it's being able to look at the situation that you're in knowing that every emotion is is a good emotion at some point but is that emotion appropriate for the situation i'm heading into if you've got a customer on the end of the phone on the phone that's really angry and you turn around and laugh appropriate probably not um, so it's understanding, yeah, when is, when is it appropriate to feel that emotion and what is the appropriate severity level that I'm going to actually display that emotion in? Mm -hmm. And I suppose that, again, brings in what you are talking about earlier on about ownership and owning your That's right. emotions. That's exactly right. And, and I know one of, the, um, one of the biggest moments I had with one of my clients was um, she she knew a trigger at home was uh, when she asked her partner to do something and he just never did it straight away. And she's like, 
know, I ask him to take the rubbish out. I ask him to do this and he, and he just doesn't do it. He just ignores me. And then two days later, it's still not done. And I said to her, okay, like, that's who he is. Like, you cannot force him to do it. You cannot, you can't take control of him. If you know he's going to react like that and you need it done now, you've got a choice. You can either choose to ask him knowing that it probably won't happen right now, but if it's really important for you to get that job done right now, you may just need to do it yourself. That's the only thing you can control. And um, it's conversations like that where she kind of just paused and looked at me and said, I'm starting to think this is all about me, Amy. Yes, yes, it is. Because that's the only thing you can control. So, um, yeah, it's kind of just, it is, it's that real ownership, owning your own emotions, owning your own reaction to situations. Mm. Another thing that we talked about earlier on was disrupting mindsets. Can you tell me a bit more about what that actually means? Yeah, I think that, we, you know, we get stuck in um, that Groundhog Day so easy, right? This is what we're supposed to do. We just come in, you know, we do this step and then we do this step and, you know, we get up in the morning, we go through those same routines and, um, and wonder why we get a bit bored or wonder why the outcome is the same. Uh, and disrupting mindsets is all about, oh, I like to explain it as it's kind of like taking your heart and your head kind of slicing them open and exposing them and then working it all out, kind of jumbling it up and shaking a bit and challenging all of those expectations and those um, preconceived ideas that you have on life and the way that you approach and what you do and then stitching it all back together and giving it a go in a slightly different way. Uh, So for me, you know, I do specialise in the whole corporate space and the company space. So I like to go into companies and really disrupt their mindset in that around kind of around five areas. So it's around, you know, own it, feel it, face it, um, ask it and drive it and um, just really challenge the preconceived ideas that they have and think, what if, like, what if we did it different? Or, you know, how, how could you get that same outcome coming from a totally different angle? So it's just being able to, you know, we know that all those whys and those paths in our mind, they can be changed right up until right up until the day that we die you can create new paths new brainwaves um so it's being able to challenge those companies as well just to think slightly different about what they do and the impact that they have on other people how do you it's interesting how do you find space for emotional intelligence and empathy in the corporate world given that on one level it is people so I understand how people talk to people and we have to, um, you know, we have to get along and, you know, be emotionally intelligent with each other as we interact. Yet the water that you swim in, in a corporate environment, um, is quite mechanistic around the fact that it is driven towards profit, shareholder value and that's the that's the machinery upon which decisions are made and <clears throat> there's not all you know that is very left hand side of your brain logical um and you know the decisions are quite clear you know is it you know if we're not if we're not making you know if not hitting profit if we're not hitting revenue then we need to adjust things and that may well mean that we have to slash the workforce by 20 percent, which means that but you go the next bit further, which is 
which means that people will struggle, go through mental problems. Da, 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 da. So, you know, I understand how the people interacting um, require this level of ownership, emotional intelligence, you know, disrupting mindsets, et cetera, et cetera. But the machine, the mechanism, the system, the environment in which you swim in, in there distinctly has a lack of empathy within it. How do you marry that up? Do you find yourself with your work sometimes hitting a bit of a ceiling with that? <laughs> it's not easy. It is an absolute challenge. And there's, um, I, I think it, it, <coughs> it usually is the people that or the companies that need it the most are the ones that are dead against it. Um, mm. But the way that I look at it, and I'm a true believer, that if you look out there in the market, anyone can create a product. Once one company's created it, anyone can mirror it. You can, you've got, in any industry, you've got a, just a mirror of the same product with slightly different names. The only thing that differentiates those companies are their people. That is it. And I think that you can create the most amazing product or service possible out there and you can focus on your customers and you can focus on the greater world but the minute that you bring those customers to your door it is your people that will either keep them there or send them away you can have the best product in the world but if your if your people are not uh, empathetic if they don't know their purpose if they don't have ownership if they're not performing and have the right mindset it will send your customers away so I think the way that I approach it with companies is, um, I, I mean, it's hard. It's not, it's not as measurable. It's not as black mm. or white. No. But when we look at it, what brings people into a business is their IQs, definitely their skill levels, is definitely their background. What promotes people and what makes people successful in businesses is their EQ. It is, and you can pinpoint it within companies, the people that have the EQ and the difference that they're making in that part of the business as opposed to other parts of the business. So I like to challenge a lot of the processes. I mean, I, I'm a big mums person and I think every company, every company, even from a sole trader, needs a business plan. They need a strategic plan. They need a marketing plan. They need all of those processes there. They need targets based on their, their finances and where they're heading. But equally... Equally, in that plan, they need an EQ plan. They need to have that one person around the table thinking from that angle all the time. Any projects that they do uh, needs that kind of approach to it. And um, if I look at the only real part of businesses that we have at the moment that are close to EQ are your HR areas. And unfortunately, even HR areas have become very process driven it's not so much emotional intelligence is if you have an underperformer you run through this process and this step then this step then this step rather than sitting down and actually working out what is causing this problem so it's about being able to understand and when the there is people. a problem people tend to stay in that nice clearly defined area of performance as opposed to eq and everybody's been in that situation where you've got someone in the team who's who's dragging the team back and you just, they do the work, but they kill the atmosphere or they yeah. kill the creativity and you, you, you can't fire them or bin them just because, you know, because we're not performing because usually they are performing to a level, but there's just something you can't put your finger on it. Yep. And then you put them on performance management that you know they're going to be able to achieve because it's got nothing to do with their skill set. It's their attitude. 
So it's um, yeah. that, that is where leadership skills come in. That's where the emotional intelligence comes in that you kind of need to look and put your own pride aside and say, do you know what? Everyone is a superstar at something. And if they are underperforming in their job, they find out why they're underperforming and ask them. Like sometimes we avoid asking the honest, yeah. easy questions. I shouldn't say easy because they are difficult questions to be. But, they are easy. but they're easy. It is what's going on? Like, yeah. why are you underperforming? Do you want to be here or not? If you don't, then let's help you find another job. But, you know, I, I think that's a tough thing. And for me, they are challenging. It's challenging in the corporate world to, to get them to focus on this space. But I really do think times are turning and companies are realizing that. Uh, emotional intelligence is what the game changer is. If they want to succeed, um, put the focus in that area and it's worth it's worth more than any brand new product that comes onto the market that, that your competitor is going to mirror within two or three months. It possibly starts right in the recruitment. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It starts, it, it's, I work with a lot with recruiters now, just even getting to get them to understand emotional intelligence and the, the importance of putting someone in the right role that just because they've skimmed down a job title and they see a couple of things jump out that they really love doing. And then all of a sudden you place them in that role and they find out that that's 10% of the role is the stuff that they love doing. And 90% is the stuff that they absolutely hate. So it, it does, it's got to start right at the beginning and getting the right people in the right jobs. Mm. Mm. So um, if we come out of the corporate world and look into the greater society at this point in time, um, are you seeing an increased level in people's expressed emotional intelligence? Yes, yes. Uh, we, we're in an extreme circumstance at the moment and everyone's emotions are in an extreme level as well. Uh, Any time that, that we're in a situation where we've got that unknown, right, fear is... Fear is the number one thing that's driving us at the moment. It's that fear of unknown and fear of uh, uncertainty. I think I, I read a hilarious post on um, on social media last night. I think there's so many good ones out there at the moment, isn't there? But um, a lady had uh, posted in America saying, Americans need to know when this is going to stop. When is it going to end so that we can have some certainty, <clears throat> excuse me, around... Yes, some certainty around our jobs and our lives and our kids. Like, we need to know when. And somebody came back and said, I've, I've just had a conversation with the coronavirus and they've decided that they'll stop killing people on the 19th of April at 1 p.m. But if 1 p.m. doesn't work for you, they can always bring it back to 12 p.m. How does that work? <laughs> and I thought that that is just pure gold. Um, because uh, when you look at a situation like this, it is, it's that fear of uncertainty that is driving everyone's emotions and no one has the answer. And all we can do is kind of uh, mitigate, I think, for that fear and say, okay, if it lasts for a week or two, this is how we respond. If it lasts for a month or two, this is how we respond. Are we prepared for any one of those possibilities to happen when we don't actually know what the answer is? Uh, so it's very extreme out there at the moment. Mm -hmm. And certainly that need for certainty, you know, these are uncertain times. There are a lot of unknowns and we, well, our mind doesn't deal well with that, does it? 
no, no, certainty is something that we definitely need. And um, and you can even see the the fear of missing out, that whole FOMO happening as well. I mean, that's what's happened with all of the hoarding. Because if you're uncertain, you don't have the answers, and then you see other people doing extreme things, it makes you think, maybe they know something I don't know. Like, if they're hoarding mm. paper, then then maybe I should be. Like, have they heard of something that I haven't heard of yet? Quick, let's jump on that bandwagon too, just in case. And then you get the people that would never hoard and don't want to hoard, but then start thinking, well, if everybody else hoards, what happens when I actually run out? And then there's no toilet paper there because everyone's hoarded. So I'll quickly grab a packet now and then they turn into a hoarder. I have to, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's a cascading effect and it's all driven by that pure fear that's coming inside of us. Hmm. What's, um, what are you learning about yourself in this environment at the moment? I think I'm learning appreciation more than anything. Uh, I think I'm no different than any other person out there that when this first hit, uh, it massively impacted my business as well. Mm. So I could see, you know, majority of my business is around uh, keynote speaking at conferences, events, doing workshops. And of course, all of that was put on hold. So I could see, I could see all of my clients just one after the other coming through and saying, cancel, postpone. Like we can't run this right now. We can't do this. And in my head, those couple of days, I was thinking, yeah, we can, we can do it virtually. But I think I had to stop and appreciate and say, the main focus for my customers at the moment is to get a whole company set up working from home, is to get, you know, 80 plus staff with their systems working, with, you know, the right technology, with making sure they're okay and they're safe, making our companies go okay. And for me, it forced me to stop and really say, you know what, you just need to let things be for a week and a half or two weeks while people settle. And, and my role changed very much. I, you know, I didn't touch work for a couple of days and just made sure that my family was okay and, and my house was ready and, and my mindset was right. And then I kind of turned and went, okay, now it's not about business. How can I help other people through this? Mm. But, but I think it's a real wake-up call. It's, I mean, I'm spending more time with my kids and my husband than we probably were prior to this. And, you know, it's, I'm looking at how much food we waste and think, why do we waste so much food? This is going to change. So I think it's appreciation and awareness is that we're all starting to really look at things through a different, totally different lens. Mm. It's almost um, the disruption aspect of this. It almost feels necessary, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's as terrible as the situation is, there's something really good that's coming through it as well. It's, it's like we would need it. It's like, you know, when you, your body gets sick, this kind of sounds a bit cheesy now, but you, you, you know, when you work and you work and you work and then it's time for holidays and all of a sudden you stop and your body gets sick because you finally let it. It's like we've just been plowing through our lives so busy, so chaotic um, and quite selfishly too, like, you know, taking for granted what we've got and all of a sudden the world's just going, you know what, you will stop. You will stop right now and appreciate what you've got. Yeah, Um, you'll stop doing and you'll just be. Yeah, yeah. It's very strange because it, it, 
it's got all the elements of holiday, but it's not holiday. You know, I mean, how, I was chatting to someone the other day, um, how often do you spend this amount of time with your partner, with your kids? Um, well, it, it's holiday. Otherwise, you know, the rest of life takes you away and you're doing your thing and you're on your own and you're doing your bit and da 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 and you come back and there's these people that you're with and they, they, they mean a lot to you. But when are you actually, you know, putting pennies in the pot and being present and, you know, pennies in the pot of the relationships yeah. and being present, you're actually doing it now. Yes. It's it is so like much that. to enjoy. Yeah, I think along with, as much as I say there's so much fear about, I actually think there's so much love about too. Like, you know, mm. you're spending that quality time with people and, and you're not taking people for granted. You are checking in on people that you might only speak to every couple of months, which now you're checking in on them more regularly. You know, you're doing things, like we're pulling out board games that we haven't played for ages, jigsaw puzzles. It's, it's, it's a lot of love there too. Yeah, I guess the challenging question is how do we keep that to stick yeah yeah look i think the longer it goes on for i think the the more it will stick mm. uh, you know we know we know it takes around 21 days on average to form a habit uh, but you're not going to form a habit until you've chosen you want that habit uh, so it comes back to that choice again right like at yeah. the moment we've been forced into something um, so until people can feel that mindset shift in their mind to say, actually, I'm not forced into this now, I'm choosing and I can see the logic behind it and I've accepted it and I think it's the right Taking ownership of it. Taking ownership of it, right? Then that's when you start creating that habit. So for some people that might have happened a day or two into it and if this goes on for, you know, a month or two, then those, those new habits will really get cemented into them. Where for others that take longer, it may not have as big an impact. But I, I think we're definitely going to come out the other side of this uh, having more appreciation. I think that, you know, they've joked about it and said that there'll be a lot more divorces. Um, I'm sure there will be, but I actually think there'll be a lot more uh, marriages and relationships that come closer together as well. I think Good people... Yeah, people will truly get to know each other in mm -hmm. these circumstances and decide whether, you know... It's, whether it's a rekindle of love or whether it's a, okay, I'm out of here. That's enough. I cannot spend another minute with you. Yeah. I was actually musing because is it, I might, I know this happens somewhere, but I might get the wrong place. Is it Bali where they actually have a weekend where everyone just shuts the door and stays in for the weekend? There's, there's a festival. I, mean, I, I know they do it in Japan. Uh, yeah. They might do it in Bali as well, but I know Japan over, I think it's over New Year's, they don't celebrate and everyone just yeah. goes back to their hometown and everything shuts down. Um, they might do it in Bali as well, but it, it is. I just wonder whether we need to, one, one week a year, we, we have Corona Week and we just. I love that. Just yeah. Shut I was saying to my husband. I was saying to my husband yesterday uh, because uh, I said it feels a little bit like the Hunger Games. Like I was a tribute chosen to go to the shops to to get the to get the supplies of what yeah. we need for for our house. <laughs> the tribute you have been chosen. Go to the shops. So I, I was like running the gauntlet out there. Um, but I said to him, it's funny how your life even changes in that. The amount of money I'm spending on groceries at the moment has increased because we're at home all the time and we're 
eating at home all the time as opposed to the money that we would usually spend out at a coffee shop or a restaurant or a cafe or out and about. So it is funny how, you know, it is creating different kind of um, habits. There are habits, but also yeah. different approaches to the way that we even live at the moment. It's, yeah, it's... I think the nice thing, it's interesting because you talk about it's creating new habits. Um, We've existed for such a long period of time where, you know, once you leave school, you are the master of your own destiny, as we've talked about, and you've your own habits and this, that, and the other. And you really do have a fresh, you know, fresh, clean slate. And, you know, so if you want to eat McDonald's all day and, and, and balloon out to a 200 kg, you can do that. Yeah. And and the health system is there to support you when you fall over yeah. and this, that and the other. However, we're still free to choose, but I think the decision landscape has changed dramatically yeah. in the fact that you are free to choose, but recognise that while well, you had that many options before and that much of the weight, it's only that big now. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of necessary because if you know you could get really esoteric and say, well, you know, we weren't really as collective making lots of really great choices. Yeah, I, I think I think we're going to learn a lot about our choices when we come out the other end. But mm. I actually think too, funnily enough, from being in this situation, I actually think it's creating even more choice for us in that, you know, all of these things that we've been kind of forced to do now or, or we've chosen to do will now become options, like you said, whether it's that week staying at home, whether it's, you know, for those people that love to eat out all the time that have suddenly realised actually eating in isn't that bad a thing, maybe we could, you know, do something in the middle for all of yeah. those places out there that have either been flexible or 100% against it. It's kind of created a middle ground for them saying, well, actually, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe we've got a choice where we can do a little bit of each. So um, I actually think we're going to end up with even more choice out the other end because it's, it's a totally new experience, right? Mm-hmm. We always, and we'll be talking about it forever. It'll be, so, so my daughter's learning about the Black Plague at the moment through school. And I said, well, your kids' kids will be learning about COVID-19. That They'll be studying this at school. It's, um, you know, we're creating history right now. Yes. What are some of the things you're doing to keep yourself grounded, Amy? Uh, I've tried to, I'm a bit of a structure person, so I've tried to bring in a little bit of structure to the family. Uh, I'm certainly, yesterday I learnt long division, that's probably something that I wasn't expecting to do. (laughs) My son was having trouble with his long division, so I had to research that and find out what long division is. But I think for us, um, our biggest thing is, is we're trying not to do everything at once in one day. So I'm saying to the kids, you know, each day we will um, play one board game, like pick one board game and that'll be our board game for the day. Let's watch one movie if we're going to watch a movie. Let's make sure we do some form of exercise. We've got a basketball tournament going on at the moment. But then also what I'm making sure that we do is once we spend that good hour, an hour and a half together playing a board game or doing something, uh, we're in agreement that we now have an hour apart. Find, find a spot in the house. Or even, if it's near, even if we're near each other, you've got headphones on. You just have an hour to yourself because I think as nice as it is to be around everyone, you need to make sure that you have your own space and your own time and you're not trying to do everything at once and try not to entertain each other for every second of every day. So mm. I think it's that balance at the moment to try and make sure that we still have that downtime and we have those reality checks. Mm. 
And the last question I ask all my guests is um, right now, if you could take a little nugget of information and upload it into the collective consciousness so everyone just gets it, what would that be? Oh, that's a great question. See, I'd straight away go to mindset. I'd straight away go to mindset and emotional intelligence. And I'd say to people that even when you're thrown into extreme situations like this, your mindset will determine how you come out the other end. And I would say to everyone just to take a step back right now and take a deep breath. And um, even though you can't control COVID, you can't control what's happening around you you can control your own mindset and how you choose to react and how you come out the other end. So I would ask them a question to say, how do you want to remember COVID-19? How do you want the people around you to remember how you acted, how you responded? Yeah. What is that memory that you're creating that when your kids look back or your family looks back and they say, yeah, I remember COVID and I remember this is what Amy did or this is what Bryn did, you know, what, what will they say? What will you say? Superb. Superb. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, Amy. Um, if people want to find you, where can they find you? Uh, jump onto my website. You can find it under www.amyjacobson.com.au or under findingyourwhy.com.au. Either way, and I'm on all social media as well. So pop over and say hi. I'd love to meet you. Superb. Thank you so much for your time today. I've super enjoyed it. You're very welcome, Brynn. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Superb.